We're going to do some word associations, okay? When I say something, I just want you to think about this. You do not have to say anything. In fact, some of the things I'm going to say, I don't want you to say anything with what you associate with it, okay? And then I'll give you permission a little ways in that you can respond with what comes to mind, all right? So let's start. We're in a political season right now. So what comes to your mind when you think of a Bernie Sanders supporter, all right? Don't say anything. Just think about that. What comes to your mind when you think of a Donald Trump supporter? What floats through your mind when you hear that? All right. What comes to your mind when you think of or you hear the term country boy? You hear the term country boy. What comes to your mind? Now, we're going to move into the sports arena now, so you can give me some response now, all right? All right, what comes to your mind when you hear Washington Redskin fan, all right? All right. <laughs> we have special time for you at the altar during the invitation later in the service. All right, Dallas Cowboy fan. Right. Do we have any chief fans in here this morning? No, I won the Super Bowl and don't even have one fan in the congregation. That's tough stuff, I tell you. What comes to your mind? You're a Virginia Tech Hokie. Oh, my gracious. I thought I was going to get a big response on that one. All right. UVA Cavalier. All right. Oh, my gracious. That's the exact opposite of what I thought I was going to get on that. Well, I got any Liberty Flame fans in here? <laughs> All right. Now, don't respond to this one. Well, what comes to your mind when you hear the term Christian? What comes to your mind when you hear the term Christian? Many of you have positive thoughts that go all the way back to your childhood. Some of you may have negative thoughts. Not too sure about this term called Christian. Interestingly enough, the term Christian is used three times in the Bible. Even though we use it extensively, it is only used three times in the Bible. The word disciple is used 281 times in the Bible. Now think about that. The term Christian is used three times and the word disciple is used 281 times. The term disciple is used to describe repeatedly the followers of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. But what does it mean to be a disciple? You see, a lot of folks who fly under the banner of Christian and who would say that I am a Christian are not actually disciples. I can have the term Christian and claim it, but that doesn't necessarily mean I am a disciple of Jesus. So what does it mean to be a disciple? If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Now, as you're turning there, allow me to give you some background to the term disciple as it was originally used in Judaism and the Judaism of Jesus' day. All Hebrew boys, all Hebrew boys, went to what was called Torah school starting at age five. And at age five, these boys would go into Torah school where they basically studied Genesis through Deuteronomy, the, the ancient 
writings of, the, uh, of Moses, etc. And they studied the Torah starting at age 5. Now, at age 10, the boys who knew the Torah and were the best students went on to study the remainder of the Old Testament. And the rest of the boys returned home to their family businesses. So you have all the Hebrew boys going into Torah school at age 5, but at age 10, a judgment is made as to which are the best students. And those guys, those boys, stay in Torah school to continue their studies through the rest of what we call today as the Old Testament. The rest of them went home to be part of their family business. Now, at about age 17, if you as a young man wanted to make a career out of religious studies, the next step was to find a rabbi that you admired, and apply to become one of his disciples. And if you became one of his disciples, you were part of what was called the Talmudim. The rabbis were very picky when these young men would come to them. They chose what in their estimation was the brightest and the best of the young men who came to them at about 17, 18 years of age. And they were picky for this reason. When you reached that 17 to 18 age period and you went to a rabbi and you said, I want to study under you. And the study at that point was not necessarily a classroom environment. It was more one-on-one or one on a small, the rabbi on a small group of his disciples. And the discipleship took on this form. You weren't just studying the Torah and the Old Testament at that point. That continued to be a focus, major focus of your study, but you studied your rabbi. You literally moved in with your rabbi. You lived with your rabbi. You begin to take on the characteristics of your rabbi in that you begin to talk like him and dress like him and act like him. In fact, you would become so closely associated with your specific rabbi that people would be able to walk up to you as a young man and say, oh, you must be a disciple of rabbi so-and-so because you talk like him, you walk like him, you speak like him, you carry so many of the characteristics of the rabbi that you have. Now, also within Judaism, there was an elite group of rabbis. Those rabbis had to meet specific qualifications to be part of this small elite group. Gamaliel, for example, who's mentioned in the book of Acts, would have been one of these elite rabbis. And this is the three characteristics that you had to meet in order to be one of these elite rabbis and was considered a huge honor and privilege. First of all, for a rabbi to accept you into his group and be part of the Talmudim, but it was considered an even higher privilege if you could get into one of these top rabbis. Three qualifications. Number one, they had to be experts in the Torah. I mean, you had to know the Torah even better than the re- an average rabbi. Secondly, you had to have, have a reputation for performing miracles. And third, you had to have confirmation by other rabbis that you were a top rabbi. Jesus met all three of these qualifications in that at 12 years of age, he was in the temple confounding the doctors of the law with his mastery of the Torah. Second, of course, he performed miracles. And third, when Jesus, as you read through the Gospels, every time he went into a synagogue or into the temple area, he was given space and time to speak because he was considered and recognized by the rabbis as such an expert teacher. Let me get this. That's the background for the passage that we're going to look at today. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4, beginning with verse 18. 
While walking by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin. I invite you, if you would, to follow along with me. Notice what Jesus does here when he walks up to these disciples. He calls a group of guys who are willing to follow him. And so discipleship begins with a willingness to follow Jesus. Now, a lot of times when we read this passage, we have this idea, and if you've ever seen some of the old Christian movies that were produced, they were this way, that Jesus walks up to these disciples, and they're there by the Sea of Galilee doing their business with the nets, and he's almost like Darth Vader. He looks at them, and this glow begins to come out of him, and he says, follow me, and they drop their nets, and almost like they're transfixed, they begin to walk after Jesus and follow him, and it just looks tremendously you know, exciting, and like they're all in trances, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's actually not what happened here at all. It makes for a good movie. It makes for terrible theology. This is what happened as you read the context of this. Jesus had gone to these guys sometimes earlier, and he had begin, begun to build a relationship with them. And they began to go with him on short trips. For example, they would go to special occasions like the wedding in Cana. And then they would go back to their nets, back to their fishing business. And then he would come down on another day and say, hey guys, I want you to go with me wherever. And they would go with him to wherever. And so they would travel out and they would go back and travel out and go back. And Jesus is slowly building a friendship and a relationship with them. He hung out with them by the Sea of Galilee, which meant if you had watched them, Jesus would go down there and he would mend nets with them. He, we've got stories of how he fished with them. What is he doing? He's building a relationship. Now remember, Jesus is a carpenter by trade. He is not a fisherman. He has to learn the language of fishermen, and the art of fishing in order to connect with them because he's stepping outside of his comfort zone, which would have been a carpenter's shop, in order to go into their comfort zone, which was the Sea of Galilee and and fishing. So Jesus is doing all this to begin to build this relationship with them. This day, when Jesus walks up to them and says, Come follow me, they look at Jesus and they have come to recognize him as a rabbi. They have come to recognize him as one of the, and understand him to be one of the top rabbis. But notice what Jesus is doing here. He's calling the B team to follow him. All these guys were Jewish. Five years of age. Mama packed them up and gave them their lunch and sent them off to Torah school. And for the next five years, they studied in Torah school. And then the big day arrived when they announced which boys stay in the program and which boys go home. Peter, we love having you here. Bye-bye. You didn't make the cut. And down they go through the list of these guys. You didn't make the cut. You didn't make the cut. You didn't make the cut. So they packed up their bags 
packed up their Torah, and headed on home. About 10 years of age. These guys are adults now. They've long since given up that they've got any authority and credence within the local synagogue because they did not make the cut. They are the B team. And Jesus shows up as a recognized top rabbi and he says to them, follow me. Can you imagine how they must have felt? We were rejects back when we were 10, and now one of the top guys is calling us to become a disciple of his. And all they had to do was say yes. Listen, when Jesus looked at them, he looked at them different than they had looked at when they were kids. When they were looked at at 10 years of age, you're not talented enough, you are not educated enough, you are not smart enough, you're not at the top, you are not part of the A-team, so bye. Nice person, but bye. Jesus looks at them and he says, I'm really not concerned about how intelligent you are. I'm really not concerned about how much you got going for you. What I am concerned about is, are you willing to follow me? And if you are willing to follow me, then I've got all the power and all the glory and everything I need to make you into what I need to make you. You see, the issue, folks, is not our intelligence. It's not our success. It is not how impressive we are to other people or to ourselves. It's just being available because Jesus knows your willingness, your availability, but it's his power gets the job done. In fact, Jesus, I believe, wanted them because he knew that they would be more open to his power being in them and through them than if they had felt like they had their act all together and had everything that they needed. John MacArthur says, God skipped all the wise of the day. The great scholars were in Egypt. The great library was in Alexandria. The great philosophers were in Athens. The powerful were in Rome. He passed over Herodias the historian and Socrates the great thinker and Julius Caesar. He chose men so ordinary it was comical. No rabbis, no teachers, and no religious experts. He just picked a group of folks who were available. Now notice the next thing about being a disciple. A disciple is chosen. Jesus said, follow me. Follow me. I've chosen you. Now I want you to imagine a conversation when someone walks up to Peter and says, Peter, I grew up with you. And I was in Torah school with you. And I remember the day you didn't make it. You got cut. You got sent home. And now you're walking around following one of the top rabbis in Galilee. Who do you think you are to be a disciple? What right do you have to call yourself a disciple? And Peter's response could have been very simple. Because he chose me. He chose me. That's all was required. He chose me. Listen, the devil will give you every excuse and every reason why you cannot follow Jesus and been used of God, but don't listen to him. You will give yourself every excuse under the sun why you cannot be used of God, but there's only one thing that counts, and that is the choice of Jesus. That's all that matters. When Jesus lays his hands on you and Jesus says, I love you and I want to use you and I will empower you, his opinion and his call 
And his choice is all that matters. He chose me. Notice what he says when he chose him. I love what Jesus says in verse 19. Follow me. He does not say, okay guys, this is the list of projects that I've got for you to do. He says, I want you to come and be with me. Follow me. Does he have guidelines for us on how to live? Of course he does. But oh, don't miss this. Jesus calls us to be with him. He is not calling us foremost to try to follow all the rules. He's calling us to follow him. He is saying, I want you to come be with me. Now, who were these guys he was calling? They were stinky fishermen. Now, we had these pictures. I don't know if you grew up with them or not, but I grew up with these pictures of these guys, and they always sat around and had their long, flowing hair. looked like it just came out of haircuttery, and they had a beautiful, flowing robe. It looked like it just came out of, you know, some nice big mall store somewhere. And they had that halo sitting on their head and just all this flowery language you can imagine coming out of their, throat, their mouths. Again, that's totally unlike what it would have been. These guys were fishermen. Can you imagine going down there and working with them as they were fishing? Have you ever been around guys that like to fish a whole lot? They don't necessarily smell real good. You get dirty and messy trying to work with the fish, etc. And forgive me for what I'm about to say, but most guys when they fish don't sit around and talk about the Bible and talk about matters of theology. And when they get a hook in their hand, they do not say, Thank you, Jesus. Praise you, Jesus. I got a hook in my finger and I'm bleeding. They let out a trail of words that don't exactly sound real good. Some of the stuff they talk about is not exactly the best stuff in the world to talk about and Jesus goes down and he's hanging out with these guys and these are the guys that he calls to be his followers there weren't any halos anywhere around there when he said I want you to come and be my followers and he says I just want you to come and be with me Jesus says to us I I know how screwed up you are and I know how messed up you are etc etc but I just want you to come and be with me follow me I want you to hang out with me That gives you confidence, but also makes you know you're loved. Because what Jesus is trying to say to them is, this is about the journey, not just the destination. This is about how we're going to journey together through life, not just where you're going to end up. And so, so many times we lose sight of that. We forget that it's about the journey i got to get perfect. God, i got to get perfect now. Jesus wants me to do this, that, and the other, et cetera, et cetera. We forget about the journey. My wife and I, in our family histories, have two distinct different approaches to how you do vacation. And a number of years ago, my wife told me that she, her sisters, and their husbands wanted us to join them and go on vacation together. Now, this is the way that I do vacation. You decide months and months in advance where you're going to go. You secure your reservations way out ahead of time. You know to the minute when you were leaving the house. You know to the minute when you approximate you were going to arrive at your vacation destination. You have an itinerary of everything that you're going to do and when you're going to do it on vacation. 
You even know practically when you're going to leave to go back home and when you're going to arrive. Everything is very much time. So we, we got together with her family and we got to the, uh, one of her sister's houses and we we're all packed and ready to go and everybody just standing around talking and having fun. And so I asked my wife, when are we leaving? Oh, we don't really know. <laughs> and I'm like, you don't really know? I need an exact time that we're leaving. Oh, we're not really sure. So finally we got in the car and we started heading. We were going to Pennsylvania Dutch country. So we, uh, we get up there and uh, we're riding around looking for a place to eat. And I happened to ask a very, I thought it was a very innocent, basic question. Where are we spending the night? What hotel do we have a reservation at? And I was told that we don't have a hotel reservation anywhere. <laughs> that we're going to just sort of find the hotel and stay there. And at this point, my blood pressure is beginning to go up. Uh, one of her sisters asked Helen if there was something wrong with me, that I didn't seem to be real happy, uh, etc. And all I could see in my mind was we're going to end up in some seedy hotel that's full of fleas and all this kind of stuff, or we're going to spend the night in our cars. Uh, that there will be no hotel reservations, so we're going to go to Cracker Barrel to have dinner, and I cannot concentrate on anything that I'm eating because all I'm thinking of is we have no hotel reservations. So then they begin to visit hotels. And fortunately, they kept me outside in a car and had me, had me in negotiating because I'd have probably been there on my knees. Please give us a hotel room. Please give us a hotel room, etc. Well, they found a hotel room, etc. And the whole vacation was just sort of, we were sort of making it up as we were going. And this is what I discovered. My vacations tend to be all about the itinerary. Their vacations tend to be all about relationships. And when I finally was able to adjust, I really started enjoying it because I wasn't focused on the itinerary. I was focused on the relationships. When Jesus says, follow me, he's saying, let me take care of the itinerary. Just focus on the relationship. Some of us get so upset with God because we want to know the will of God. In other words, we want to know the itinerary. And he doesn't give us the itinerary. And it makes us so frustrated with God. You know, over the years that I've been a pastor, I have been asked, Pastor, how do I know the will of God? But very few times have I asked, how do I know God? He's more interested in you knowing him than knowing his will. It's not the itinerary, it is the relationship. Now, a disciple has to leave all to follow him. Why did they leave all to follow him? It says they dropped those nets and began to follow him. Well, it was a privilege to go from the B team to the A team. But this is the real reason I think those disciples followed him. A disciple follows because he knows Jesus loves him. I really believe at the end of the day, the reason those disciples dropped those nets is because Jesus coming back day in and day out, them going to events with him, going back and forth with him the whole bit, that they begin to realize, you know, this guy cares about us. You know, he's a rabbi, and he listened to us say some pretty raunchy things around the boat yesterday. And we didn't think he'd come back. And doggone if he didn't show up again. And, and he knows that, that we got cut years ago, but that doesn't seem to bother him. 
he keeps coming back. They watched how he interfaced with other people. And they said, this guy really cares about people. Because the religious leaders of Jesus' day cared about the law. They cared about people breaking rules. They cared about how much you knew. They cared about everything but people. But Jesus cared about people. He loved people. He enjoyed being around people. He engaged people. He connected with people. And as they listened to him and they watched him, they said, Jesus, he really cares about us. So when Jesus says, follow me, it wasn't that difficult of a decision because most of us, if we are convinced that someone really cares about us and loves us and is committed to us, we don't freak out too much about following them. The greatest thing Jesus wants you to understand about following him is that it means you're taking a journey with him that is a journey into his love. A journey into his commitment to you. Follow me. I think I'll take him up on it because I know he loves me. Now notice the two things that they left. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets And followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, their brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father. Mending their nets, he called them. They left the boat and their father and followed him. They left two things they left their careers and they left their dad. That was big. First of all, they left their careers. They left what they were doing to go follow Jesus. Now, I don't know the will of God and the plan of God for you all and folks that are listening through social media, etc. But there may be someone or someone's listening to me that God's going to speak to you and he is going to call you to leave your career and follow him. And that's going to be a, a major decision you've got to make. But for many of us, it's not going to be leave your career and follow him. It's going to be leave the motive that you've got in your career to follow him. And what do I mean by that? So often, what is our motive in our career? Is to make money, is to climb the ladder, is to be more important, is to get a nice, secure lifestyle. And leaving my career to follow him doesn't mean I leave the job, but it does mean I leave the motive, that my motive for work and my career, etc., is to honor him and to glorify him and to use my job to bring honor and glory and attention to Jesus. And everything I'm doing is to ultimately focus on him. It's not to get the salary level I'd like to get. It's not to get the prestige and the prominence that I want. It's not to get the security place in life that I want to have. It is to honor him and to glorify him and to use this career in any way that he leads and guides me to bring attention to Jesus. Jesus Christ. That I get out of bed in the morning and I say my reason for living this day and my reason for getting dressed and going off to do whatever I'm going to do, whatever vocation God's called me to, is just to honor Jesus. That is the first motivation. The reason for me to get the education that I've got to get to do the job that I want to do is to bring glory to Jesus. That my ultimate motive in everything becomes to love Him and to serve Him in that place. And that's part of what it means to follow him in my career. But secondly, it says he left his father. 
That was one of the most significant relationships and important relationships that a Jewish young man had was with his dad in the family business. Now for some of you, to leave serving Jesus and following Jesus is going to put you on a trajectory of conflict with your family. Some of you are sitting here this morning, you've got family members that think you're crazy and stupid for just sitting in this building this morning. They think you're off your rocker for reading the Word of God and serving Jesus. And the more you love Jesus and serve Him, the more ostracized you get from your family. And so you had to leave family, not because you wanted to, not because you asked to, but because serving Jesus and following Him does not set well with your family. And so following Him sometimes means you have to leave that. The other aspect of this is the kind of relationships that I'm in. How do I handle those relationships? Is Jesus Lord of the closest relationships that I have in my life? If you haven't married yet, when you move up to dating and so forth, is Jesus Lord or do I tell Jesus when it comes to my dating life, take a hike? When it comes to marriage, is Jesus the center of your marriage or is Jesus sort of out on the outside looking in? You know, he shows up at the wedding and he shows up at the funeral and in between he just sort of, you know, needs to stay up in the sky and pay on his own business, um, etc. You know, is Jesus going to be Lord of our marriage? Is he Lord of how we're working with our kids and raising our children? Or are we just going to make sure he learns about Jesus through somebody? They learn about Jesus through somebody else instead of us sharing and talking about him in the home every day. Where does all this come in? You see, when I leave, I've got to leave in the sense of making him the center of my relationships. Now notice finally in here what Jesus says he's going to do with them in verse 19. He says, if you're going to be a disciple of mine, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. In other words, you're going to reproduce. I'm going to make you a fisher of men. You are going to seek to share who I am. And invite other people to follow me. Please follow me on this. Being a disciple is not about being religious. It is about making other disciples. There is a huge difference there. It is about inviting people into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And helping them grow in that relationship with him. That is the essence of what it means to be a disciple. Is that messy? Yes. Is that tough? Yes. Does that demand a lot of us? Yes. Because anytime we get involved in people's lives, it gets messy. And it demands a whole lot. But that's what he's talking about here. He's saying, what you guys have seen me do and what I am doing and what you're going to experience from me, I want you to go out and do the same thing. You're going to replicate. You're going to imitate who I am and what I've done. But you're going to be doing that as a follower of mine, a disciple reproduces. Now, as you came in this morning, you should have been given one of these books. It's called a 30-day prayer guide, and on the bottom it's got Who's Your One? If you didn't get one, we've got them at the entrances uh, to the church as you leave today. This is what we're going to ask you to do with this 30-day prayer guide. We're going to ask you to take this guide, and if you open it to the front first page, day one, I'm going to ask you to identify one person, just one person in your life that you will begin praying for every day that they will come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Now, to help you with that in this 30-day prayer guide, the prayers are already written. So if you say, Pastor, I don't know how to pray for them. No, no sweat. We already got the prayers already written. All you got to do is pencil in their name for the next 30 days as you pray for them. 
On the other side, it's got journal your prayers. In other words, as the Lord begins to speak to you each day about this person or about your life or whatever, just write it down. It may be only one word. It may be a sentence. It may be a paragraph. That's between you and God. But just write that down. But for the next 30 days, take this prayer guide we're asking you and write in the name of that person and just follow that guided prayer every day as you pray for that person to come to know Jesus and to serve Jesus and to walk with Jesus. The second thing we're going to ask you to do is that sometime in the next year, maybe during this 30-day time of prayer, it may not be, that you ask God to give you an opportunity to sit down with that person and share with them how they can come to know Jesus. To share with them how they can have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I've been married for almost 30 years. One of the things I love to do is introduce my wife to people because of the relationship that we share. If we're a disciple of Jesus and we're walking with him, the greatest privilege we have in life is sharing with other people about our best friend. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus has done in my life. This is how awesome he is. And I want to share him with you. So I want to encourage you, take this home with you. If you didn't get one, pick one up as you leave today. Ask God to show you who that person is that he wants you to put there and begin to pray for them. And it may be that it's six months from now before you share Christ with that person. It may be next week. That's up to you and the Lord. But begin to pray for that person every day. Journal those prayers and see what God can do. If you're not doing anything else... To serve the Lord. This is, this is so basic and easy. Just part of your quiet time every day. It's got a verse for each day. And fill that in and pray for that person. Why? Because Jesus has invited us. He has called us to be his disciple. And part of the way that we do that is saying, Lord, identify to me that person that you love. And that you're calling to himself that I need to begin to pray for. And to ask for the opportunity to share Christ with. Let me give you one clue. That person that you put down may well be someone that you have to imitate the way Jesus did it. I know a lot of times we talk about evangelism like, you know, we walk up to people and we just sort of dump all the goods on them at once. But a lot of times what he wants us to do is walk up to them and begin to share Christ with them and begin to build a relationship with them. I have a pastor friend of mine back in Virginia Beach, uh, the Chesapeake area, and he was sharing the Lord with a guy a number of years ago. When he finished talking to him about the Lord, he says, do you have any questions? And this was the guy's question. He says, I got one question for you. And he said, well, what is it? Do you know my name? Do you know my name? See, what he was looking for was, do you give a flip about me? You gave me the goods, but do you really care about me? And so part of this is saying, God, help me to really care about the person that you show me that I need to begin to pray for. And as you build that relationship with them, they'll pick up on the fact without you having to say it, that you care about them. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would place on our minds, God, that one person that you want us to write into this booklet that we will pray for for the next 30 days. And Lord whether it's in the next 30 days, or the next six months, or the next year, that we will share with them 
that all they need to do is say, Jesus, I want to love you because you love me. And Jesus, I want to follow you. Lord, help us both to pray for that person and to, Lord, be willing to build a friendship with them like you did with those disciples. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you want to give your life to Jesus and you want to begin to follow him, then I want to invite you in just a moment as as we sing to walk the aisle of this church and, and I love to pray with you as you say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to follow you. Father, have your way with us in these moments, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing and come if you will.